This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Crack a Mountain Dew and pop in a quarter. It's time to level up with Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Doritos Cool Ranch Andrew, brought to you by Surge. This week, we're going to talk 8-bit about Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, a book that's just been mashing everyone's buttons since 2011. Now, this is a co-op podcast, so Andrew's going to tell me about the book as I'm just a noob. We're going to circle strafe some of the book's big themes like nostalgia and gamer saviors and dig dug a bit into why the book was such a critical hit. We'll also talk about how modern nerd experience points to issues folks have had with it surrounding the recent movie adaptation. It seemed to channel a lot of gamers' joy at the time, but does it stick? So you didn't want to do my intro because you had spent five hours writing this. Correct. what I am getting. Okay, that's cool. Just making sure that you know that we're here to talk about Ready Player One. This makes me feel like a Star Wars character. (laughs) Other this things is like I, that time in Star Trek where the thing happened. Other things I couldn't find a way to put in there were grinding, hitbox, nerf, OP, and player versus player, which is what's happening right now because you don't like my opening. <laughs> sure, no, it's it's appropriate because it has a lot of references to gamer and geek culture, and it makes me shake my head. So it's it's a lot like my experience of reading Ready Player One. Yeah, I just wanted to see if I could be Ernest Cline for a second. And the importance of being Ernest Cline. Yeah, is that he once? Okay, so let's talk about <laughs> Ernest Cline real real quick. Um, because, well, okay, we talk about a book every week on the show. One of us reads it, and they talk to the other person about it. And uh, this week, Andrew's going to tell me about Ready Player One, which has recently turned into a film that was co-written by Ernest Klein and Steven Spielberg and directed by Spielberg, I think. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, wanted, I think Spielberg got a writing credit on it. I believe he did. Um, but so Klein was born in Ashland, Ohio, 1972. I bring that up because Andrew, I'm sure you know where Ashland is because like everybody in Ohio knows where everything is. I've right? driven by signs that have Ashland on them. Okay, yeah. cool, cool, cool. So he was working in, in like IT in the mid 90s and doing some slam poetry performance in like from 97 to 2001 in Austin, Texas. And when he later collected his po- his nerd slam poetry jams, it was published as The Importance of Being Earnest. Get it? <laughs> I didn't know that I was walking into that when I did it, but here we are. He slammed <laughs> his it. way into it 15 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, he did win awards for it, so I guess he was good at it. He was slamming. Yeah, sure. Uh, he it. also started writing screenplays around that time. Um, his first film that was made was Fanboys, 
in 2009 and was actually inspired when his mom passed away and he this is from a, an interview uh, a renewed sense of mortality caused him to go through a bit of a crisis dominated of course by thoughts of star wars klein asked himself of course what if, what if i knew that i was dying and wasn't able to see this movie that i was waiting my entire life to see and if fanboys is about what else andrew but a guy who's gonna die and him and his friends try to get him to see episode one before it releases wait how long ago is this movie like released i think it was released in 2009 in 2009 that's like 10 years after episode one came out well he'd been making it for a long time i guess i that i don't get it i don't get it they have to sneak into skywalker ranch they have to go iowa to fight some trekkies uh billy williams is there carrie fisher's there william shatner's there and i think george lucas I don't know if he voices the character that is George Lucas in the film, but he's also in it. And to get into Skywalker Ranch, they have to prove that they are indeed fanboys. Lord. All right. So that gets into everything that Ready Player One is about, which is about proving that you are a true fan. Yeah. The other. The whole book, the whole arc of the book is just about are you a true fan? Are you really. Do you really know enough about the things that you like? Sure. To sure. be a true fan. Yes. Uh, another movie of his that I don't know if it was ever made. I Googled it and all I could find were announcements about its development in 2008 was Thundercade, which is like, what if Billy Mitchell found out that someone had gotten a better score than him at Donkey Kong and then went to go crush them? So, well, it's not about Billy Mitchell, about, but that's the idea. The thing about that is that everybody is better than him and he's a big cheater <laughs> that's true billy mitchell the king of kong is actually the cheater of kong yeah so if you saw that king of kong documentary back in what like 2006 he's Something the like he's the yeah. antagonist who is very puffed up and self-important and relatively recently like he was shown to have been cheating in several of his high score attempts and they got removed off like the official scoreboard mm. um so, yeah, I guess at the time it would have seemed like a good premise for a movie. But. Yeah, I don't know that it ever got made. Um, so this was his first novel, and I, I'm i not quite sure how this happened, but it was sold to Crown Publishing in 2010, uh, and then the very next day, Warner Brothers acquired the film rights. A year before the book came out, they had already sold a movie deal on this book. Which, for a guy who's never had a book published before, like, that's pretty... That's both impressive and what? Yeah, I'm trying to think why, like, what manuscript they would have had to show around that would have been... I don't know. I guess they just, they saw all that 80s nostalgia, and they saw all the references, and they were like, yeah, we gotta get in on this. Yeah, I guess. Uh, There was, in the original runs of the book, uh, there was an Easter egg in it. That like we'll talk about how this factors into the book itself, uh, but it actually, if you were like if you read it and you solved whatever the puzzle was, and then you had to set a high like a world record on a classic arcade game, and you could win a DeLorean that Ernest Klein gave to some dude named Craig Queen in 2012 for setting mm-hmm. a record on Joust, because. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is that these books basically seem like Ernest Cline wrote some books about him being a cool nerd. And I don't want to disparage that as an enterprise, but that seems like what his whole deal is. 
Yes. <laughs> Great. Because his second novel, Armada, which was published in 2015, I think it also has been optioned for a film, sounds like you, you know, one part Last Starfighter, one part Ender's Game, and then you like shake it up. And then but then a, also a bunch of 80s references. But then still. also 80s yeah. references. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and he's spoken in interviews, and this is not, you know, uh, he's in his like mid 40s, so he's got a decade or so on us, but he's spoken a lot in interviews about like where all of his nostalgia stuff comes from and that it's he's of the generation that was like a kid when VHSs happened and then he's kind of seen the arc of modern technology from its inception when i guess um, like t- t- <laughs> So part of this is coming up in a, in an era where like actually recording and being able to pour over the stuff that you like, at least if you're a fan of like movies and TV, is starting yes. to become more possible and more accessible for the first time ever. Yes, um, uh, in his era is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's what I meant. for sure, for sure. Um, and I guess people have been able to do that with with music and with other stuff for a long time. Hence, like I guess why there is established scholarship on that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, before, but yeah, like the we're gonna talk about this, but the the book falls down this weird nostalgia hole, and I guess what we have to do is talk about the merits of of that, and like, yeah, and and whether that's a that's a uh, entertaining way to write a work of fiction is just as a pile of references to something else. Sure, uh, and I also want to explore like as relevant we seem to be moving past nostalgia in pop culture like i don't think that's true i don't uh, think that's right is that not i think we are becoming more critical more critical of it but i don't think that we're moving past nostalgia okay as that's that's probably a better and way there are people are it. figuring out how to do it well but um sure. like we we may well be moving past the ready player one era where a pile of trivia is enough to get your thing off the ground. But if you look at like stranger things is, is the probably the biggest okay. example I can think of. Like the things that are self-consciously aping the conventions of, of like films and TV shows and all kinds of, and, and genres from years past like that, that is still around like, and, and reboot like you you don't you only have to look at the tv schedule it, like not even just netflix you've got the roseanne reboot coming back you've got will and grace back like nos, nos, we are not past the era of nostalgia okay, the era of nostalgia is just continuously evolving as a way to create quote-unquote new things yeah i just also feel like we're somehow stuck in 80s nostalgia now tv presents a, a, a better argument that we're not there but i don't know i think i mean the 80s was a very distinctive decade is yeah, one, is one all, thing, yeah. but also like you and I, we were born in the 80s and that, like our whole lives up to this point is just one extended 80s reference. So yeah, that's true. Part of it is just that it speaks to us in particular just because we have more stuff to grab onto. But Sure, sure. 80s is um, a very potent drug is what we're saying. Yeah, but I feel like you can you can look at. 80s nostalgia being kind of a an aughts thing and then kind of slowly becoming 90s nostalgia like i'm kind of wondering when that pete and pete reboot's coming back but you've yeah. got like a, a rocco's modern life reboot sure oh yeah um, sure, sure, if sure. the That's ren and stempy guy wasn't a total sack of garbage yeah maybe we'd like get maybe there maybe we'd get that back yeah. <laughs> okay 
so again, useful to, there's already useful a revival of that but to whatever. think about how this book is interfacing with the 70s and 80s and a particular version of the 70s and 80s that matches Ernest Klein's like midwestern his personal experience of the 70s experience. and 80s yeah. yeah uh well let's take a quick break uh we'll fast travel to the ad break andrew and then we'll dive into the book <sighs> let's let's put in another coin and continue this podcast craig you've had some experiences with bad websites Lately, yeah right i have i've been I, i'm working on a race that requires like posting a bunch of info about it on various running websites and many of them are using inferior platforms uh for their services so that i've also been looking at a lot of restaurant websites like oh. restaurant websites also are bad yeah and they there needs there there's gotta be a better way there's gotta be a better way is that way squarespace andrew yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it is. We figured it out. <laughs> well, Squarespace is also a supporter of our show, so we're gonna tell you, the listener, about it. Oh, uh, are they? I didn't even. I didn't even know. You're such a jerk. Surprise. Squarespace can help you create a beautiful website to turn uh, your cool idea into a new website. Whoops. Uh, it can help you showcase your work, uh, blog, or publish content, or sell products and services of all kinds. Um, they do this by giving you templates created by world-class designers. They give you e-commerce not functionality. not just templates. They're beautiful templates. Excuse me. They're beautiful templates. And everything's they're optimized beautiful. for mobile right out of the box. They've got analytics to help you know what's working and help you grow. All the hosting is free and secure. And they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support. We use Squarespace for our uh, our podcast website. We've used it for personal websites in the past. Um, we are pretty please with their product so if you see a website that could be a better website or you have a website that needs to be a better website go to squarespace.com for a free trial and when you're ready to launch use the offer code overdue to save 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain all right so we're back hi um so what we normally do on the show is we go through plot stuff and i think we'll get there but with ready player one i think the thing that's been the most interesting for me beyond reading it has been looking at the critical reaction like at the time it was released so back in 2011 and then as we revisited it as this as the movie's coming out like right now as we're recording this like like just the perspectives have shifted yeah it's hard to talk about that uh, like in a vacuum, right? Because we have to kind of prep people if they don't really know why that might be. Sure. But I think what you're alluding to is that, you know, when it came out, everyone from like Entertainment Weekly to the HuffPost to uh, NPR was like, this is a pretty good book. Uh, Klein's got it down for geeks. Um, NPR called the book like fun and large hearted. And HuffPo called it the grown-ups Harry Potter, which is a weird thing to say. Because um, I thought that was just Harry Potter. <laughs> I thought that was just late-stage Harry Potter, uh, saying that it had it all. Nostalgia, trivia, adventure, romance, heart, and dare I say it, some very fascinating social commentary. Uh, the New York Times was one that said, like, it, you know, it's pretty witty and interesting, um, but that gaming had overwhelmed everything else about this book. That is getting closer to what 
the modern reception of it is. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I think the full, I'll, I'll read the full quote from the times actually. So the breadth and cleverness of Mr. Klein's imagination gets this daydream pretty far, but there comes a point when it's clear that Wade, this is the main character lacks at least one dimension and that the, and that gaming has overwhelmed everything else about this book. So like, I think also there was, and this was, so we were just out of college by a year or two. And I remember hearing about this book when it, came out we'd been out of college for three years <laughs> sure it doesn't wow. feel like that long in retrospect no. but we are about to do our 10-year reunion so oh, just gosh. like time it is a margin okay um i remember hearing about it as a like it was one of the first modern books that i'd heard of being like this is about video games and video game people like it um Whereas, like, you look back at, you know, there's stuff like Ender's Game and other, like, 70s and 80s books that are dealing with online worlds or, you know, what if the virtual game was real? Um, but nothing that I can remember until this book was like, this is a, you know, New York Times bestseller that is tapping into uh, an interest that I have that... Uh, other people are like, this is a cool adventure book. Um, and then the world changed or the world revealed the world itself. turned actually. upside down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the hand wringing about Ready Player One uh, that's kind of come into the fore with the release of the film uh, and hasn't necessarily been about the film, but just about, you know, people going back and looking at the book. There's a couple different runs of critique, right? There's uh, people who even maybe eight years ago, we're like, uh, some of the writing is wanting. Um, is this litany of nostalgia terms a, a interesting experience or worth anyone's time? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also it is wrapped up in, not for anything that Ernest Klein did on purpose, um, but it is wrapped up in the 2015 and later phenomenon of Gamergate which we have talked about once or twice as it's been relevant, I think on our show, but I don't yeah, know. And actually if... not that, not that long ago. I don't, I don't remember which episode it was where it came up, but it was, it was within like the last couple of months. Yeah. The yeah. Last time we talked about, about Gamergate stuff. And so circa like 2015. So, so what ready player one is in its, in its most like benign, generous, my most benign, generous read on what this book is about is it's like a, it's a celebration of, mass market 80s culture and and the way that culture is presented in the book i think is kind of a, a problem because i don't think the book thinks that it's mass market oh sure okay culture but um now again let me just set the table for anybody who does who literally knows nothing about this book it's a post-apocalyptic yeah, it takes place in like the 2040s um, the world has changed dramatically, and what most people do to get away from it all is they disappear into this like VR landscape called the Oasis. It's, it's basically it's best to think of it as like a giant World of Warcraft type thing or like a Second Life thing. Sure, that everybody goes into it with a VR headset, and it's grown to encompass. Um, like there, there are elections. Like people get their educations in this thing. Not everybody, but mo- but most people. Okay. Um, and it is where a lot of people just go to escape the sort of drudgery, not and not just drudgery, but like the the nightmare, the the horrible bleakness of life 
on the outside. Which I think Klein has said in multiple interviews, he was writing it during the Bush era of American politics, the second Bush, so the aughts, uh, and was you know not happy with the way the world was. So what if in the future we just like fell into a internet rabbit hole instead? Yeah, and 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 his the most interesting stuff he has to say is about the the futurist bits of it and how what we're living through in our current era or like what was then the current era could could blossom into something bad. He says, as the era of cheap, abundant energy drew to a close, poverty and unrest began to spread began to spread like a virus. Every day, more and more. People had reason to seek solace inside Halliday and Morrow's virtual utopia. So it's a like fo- fossil fuel has run out. Like we we don't have cheap energy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, politicians are unable or uninterested in solving any real problems. Okay. And so what people do instead is they seek out this opiate that is this virtual utopia. Okay. Okay. Um, and so how does we've talked about nostalgia and specifically 80s nostalgia a lot in our preamble for the show can you give me a quick summary of how that relates to the book so we can go why that is like why that is a thing in the book in the first place so so what has happened is um there's this sort of steve jobsian creator figure uh named halliday who was a prominent video game developer in the 80s 90s um, and his last huge work was this virtual reality landscape called the Oasis. And it was, it originally started as like a, just a, a big collection of virtual planets that people could go to and they could like, they could get cool avatars and they could get cool spaceships. Um, he talks about how they had licensed um, like Azeroth and, and other like online Oh, okay. Worlds into sure. the into the oasis so that people could not effectively um like compete with the oasis, which I I appreciate that the book thought about that enough to like bring it in, but that is absolutely not how it would work. Like you would have you would have like an Ubisoft oasis <laughs> and an EA oasis that just had like Madden and yeah, whatever in it. It's <laughs> interesting because if we don't have this now, right, in the real world. The closest thing we have is, like, something like Facebook that has become a weird Uber platform in well, how if you, it, t- if you take, like, Facebook plus plus MMOs yeah. plus, uh, like, Oculus Rift and other VR headsets. Like, that is basically the – those are the ingredients for the Oasis, I guess. Sure, sure. But where does this the, the nostalgia thing come from? Why? So what what happens is that Halliday is you know he's he is antisocial. He is like nobody really hears from him from long, for long stretches of time, and he dies. And when he dies, to every Oasis user is sent this this like video, his last will and testament, basically, where he mm. says, "I am starting this like I am starting this contest, and whoever wins the contest, like whoever can find all my secrets." Whoever can find all my my crafty 80s secrets will get control of my company and the Oasis and like tons and tons and tons of money. Okay. Um, and there's such rampant poverty in the world that like everyone that is course, into this like, idea. Every, everybody's into this idea and, and what, you know, the, the Oasis is so important and the company's managed to stay independent, but there's this giant like... I, I just think of them as Verizon, basically, because that's what they are. But 
um, IOI is the company, Innovative Online Industries. Okay. Is this giant, like, corporate monster that has tried to get control of the Oasis a couple times, but just, like, can't through normal, like, business or legal means. And so they are attempting through this contest, like, they, they've got a bunch of people working for them who are just trying to figure out the contest like they're they trying to stage what is basically a hostile takeover of the oasis okay so those are the, that's um, the stakes there and those are the stakes and so so but halliday's video had like he was he was widely known to be obsessed with the culture of the 1980s <laughs> okay. the era in which he grew up and his video his his death video had a bunch of references to 1980s things in it and everybody think like he wrote this almanac or something that has a bunch of 80s references and a bunch of lists of 80s media in it and so everybody all the there it's this egg people are trying to find so all the egg hunters and that's shortened to gunters all the gunters are like man if only i knew enough about the 1980s i could crack Halliday's code but it's it is years until anybody figures out this first like clue that he has left in his death video Okay. And the person who finally figures it out is our protagonist. His real name is Wade. His internet avatar name is Parzival. But we're just going to call him Wade because Parzival is a stupid name. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So what is really, really like, I think the, I think the dystopia is pretty well realized. I think the Oasis that like, there's a whole, there's a whole chapter about like Halliday's backstory and the technology of the Oasis, just talking about how it maintains user privacy and how it keeps things secure, which like as a technologist, like, yeah, they don't like go in deep into all the like swordfish encryption, whatever that they're using to keep it secure, but it's, but I, but it's pretty well thought out and and obviously written by somebody who has like a an, a basic understanding of and like stake in this stuff. I thought that was all really well done. Does um, it dive I, into I, I know it's like a it's there's some elements of climate change apocalypse though I don't know if it's specific. Is there any like reference to the immense like energy consumption that such a network would require? Yeah, so what I mean th- there is a lot of, you know, now, now that fossil fuel has run out, you know, people are doing solar panels and people are doing all kinds of alternative energy things. It's just it is it is not enough to to sustain the kind of life that was possible before. OK, sure. Um, And so in the real world, what ends up happening is that any any people who live in like a rural area are basically screwed. Like there, there oh, is no, okay. there are no attempts to get power and internet out to just like one house somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Sure. So what happens is around all of the major American cities, like everybody, everybody just flees to these cities to try and like to, to find work or to find energy or to find people. And so around all these cities in the suburbs, you get these things called the stacks, which are giant piles, basically, of mobile homes, like stacked one on top of the other. Okay. It's a kind of like, do you know in college when (laughs) let's do some deep cut Kenyan college stuff while trying to still keep it accessible. So when we went to college, there were these buildings called the new apartments. Yeah. 
And when we were there, they were called the new apartments, but they'd been built like back in the 70s or 80s. Yes. And one of our friends found this note about them in the college archives that was like, if these things last another like five years, it will be astounding. And they were still standing by the time we were there. So it's it's this thing that was built that was intended to be temporary, but which ended up being permanent. Yes. Okay. And so it is not an ideal place to live because you just keep putting Band-Aids on top of Band-Aids on top of Band-Aids. Everybody's everybody's hooked on drugs and... Like there are meth labs all over the place and, and it's like it's it's bad. It's a bad scene. But okay. the image of that, like the image of a million different like trailer homes stacked on top of each other in desperation just to like try and increase the population density of this city without any of the modern the modern like machinery people would use to make skyscrapers. Like that's pretty effective stuff, okay. I think. Cool. Um so this like Easter egg thing for the Gunters is all about eighties puzzles because we did an eighties escape the room. So is this just like an internet escape the room? And it is kind the- of like living in that escape the room, okay? Because like Max Headroom does come up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's. Why do you think? And so, so in the to to go back to what we were sure. talking about yeah. with the with the, um, the critical, critical reception, yeah. yeah. In 2011, people saw okay, here's a like a relatively near future dystopia that's pretty well realized. It's got a bunch of fun references to like Star Wars and video games and stuff. It's a fun adventure story. Like, oh, it's just kind of cotton candy, entertaining. Like, yeah. Good job. A minus book, Ernest Klein. We mm-hmm. look forward to seeing what you have to bring to us in the future. Sure. And now. And now. We've kind of crossed a Rubicon of thinking. Good reference. I the, love references. You know how you can tell how something is good because it has a lot of references in it. References to like past things that have happened. Yeah. That's what our podcast is. It is. So I I do want to be self-aware about that so that we're not like just knocking someone for something that we do. I think what has happened culturally, especially in like online nerd culture, um, which it's also kind of a fallacy that some of that stuff is not just mainstream culture now, which is something you said earlier. It is mainstream culture. All of the biggest movies are comic book movies. I have said, and I'm so... The devil's greatest trick was convincing everybody who saw Star Wars that it was just for them. Yeah. Star Wars is not just for you. Everybody likes Star Wars. You don't get a prize for being a Star Wars fan anymore. It's not a thing. <laughs> Jeez. Well, and so it becomes a problem when uh, people do still award prizes for your intimacy with Star Wars knowledge, for your categorical uh, understanding of the various ships in the rebel fleet. Well, so, whatnot. so, so what, so what happens is, yeah, it's, it's, it's the way, so this stuff, I guess, classically would have been considered to be for nerds or like there is a lot more there for a nerd to dive into. Yeah. And so what happens as this stuff becomes more mainstream 
is that the people who feel like, oh, this should just be a thing for me, they put up gates to determine like, okay, you're just, uh, you've just seen the movies versus, oh, you've seen the movies and you read the books and you play the video games and you know all about all the different canon levels and like, and all the stuff you need to do to establish yourself as a true fan. Mm-hmm. And this book is all about that. It's all about like fan culture and gatekeeping and yeah. whatever. And, and so where this bleeds into the Gamergate thing is that Gamergate starts with people who are fans of a thing becoming defensive of their thing when it is challenged by other audiences. Correct. Essentially. Yes. Um, here's a like a one and a half sentence summary from uh, a good piece on Vox by Constance Grady. Um, which is Ready Player One, Backlash, Controversy, Gamergate, explained. Um, One, uh, Gamergate's origins are nebulous and contradictory. What's important for the Ready Player One conversation is that Gamergate had evolved, what Gamergate had evolved into by 2015, and that is angry gamers, mostly young, straight white men, hurling abuse at their targets, mostly women, in the name of a kind of nerd purity. And yes, there are a bunch of precipitating events that are... It's ludicrous that they're even related to this thing, um, but it kind of this idea of uh, a purity of fan base had metastasized into a thing that was malignant and took advantage of the worst that the internet has to offer. Um, so I think where it relates back to Ready Player One, and I want I would love to hear you kind of elaborate on this, Andrew, is the ways in which your your knowledge of this stuff becomes like a weapon that you use against other people as opposed to, Oh, you're into it. Let me share information with you. Yeah. So that, that is literally what happens in, in the book. So, so what we've got is we've got Wade and his friend H who are hanging out in this like private virtual chat room, but but it's like virtual reality, so there's sure. actually avatars in there. But it's basically like this: the Oasis is sort of an '80s model of the internet, except everybody can really be in there. Cool. Okay. So so you've got like chat rooms, and I don't know. Probably people are in there being like, "Oh, hey, ASL." Yeah. Yeah. And Sla- like slash cybering. dance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So they they are hanging out in the basement, which is the name of Age's little chat room. And this guy who they go to school with, whose avatar's name is IROC, the letter I dash lowercase r letter z or number zero and then lowercase k, IROC. Okay. Um and, and they're they're just like arguing with each other. Sure. Um, that's right. I called you a poser, poser. I stood and got up in his grill. You're an ignorant, know nothing twink. Just because you're 14th level, it doesn't make you a gunter. You actually have to possess some knowledge. Um, man, there's so much other stuff, and and they like calling people calling other people gay is kind of an insult in this little bit of it. That's yeah, fun. that's always great and fun and cool and fun. Yeah, there's there's stuff that is just embedded in this kind of white male culture that is better left in the dust and obviously is still in this book. Um, so yeah, they're like before this little confrontation with I rock happens, H and, and Wade are arguing about like old eighties movies. 
Um, like here, here's a little bit. The other Gunters in the chat room were now starting to form a small crowd around us to listen in. Our arguments were often high in entertainment value. And what is happening as he is having this argument with IROC is that like there's a crowd of people standing around and like applauding when Wade makes a particularly great point about or like knows a particular thing about some kind of old eighties video game. Um Okay. And it's just kind of the it's kind of the pits. Okay. Is there and I and I and I rock is defeated because he doesn't know enough about 80s culture. And so he socks off into a corner and you never actually hear from the character again. I kept expecting him to come back in some way. And he just (laughs) never, ever does. I can't like like he would be some mortal enemy. Yeah. Like maybe at the end of the book, like he would have joined. So they're the IOI people. Their clan basically is called the Sixers because all their usernames uh, are their IOI employee IDs, and those all start with six, so they all get called okay. Sixers or Sucksors, if you're as yeah. funny as our friend Wade. Got uh, I kept expecting him to like come back as a Sixer or something, oh, but it just okay. never did. Like This dude exists only to know slightly less about 80s pop culture than our heroes and to mm. be owned by them in arguments <laughs> where lots of people gather around, gather around to your children to hear about Star Wars. Sure. Star Wars trivia was one of my specialties, he says. Mm. That's a ridiculous so, thing to say. <laughs> yeah, and I don't I don't want to just like blanket like knock knowing about stuff or being interested in the minutia of things. It's but, like knowing knowing stuff is not bad. Knowing stuff and then using it as a blunt instrument to keep other people out of your circle or to imply that they don't know enough to like it the right way is bad. And that is all this book is. So, yeah, his 2015 book was Armada. And that's the one that I said earlier was like a last Starfighter Enders game riff where the quote that I found in the Slate review of it um, uh, is that all those years I spent playing video games weren't wasted after all, eh? Is what the main character says to his People mom. say A a lot in these books. <laughs> they just they just say it a lot. And that book was uh, not as well received as Ready Player One. In part, I wonder, too, A, like the cultural moment had clearly shifted, um, but the nostalgia stuff didn't seem as baked into the plot based on reviews of what i read um but the slate article also asks a pretty good question i feel is in relation to what you've been saying um the writer says it's a valuable question for gaming culture and nerd culture more generally to ask itself do we want to tell stories that make sense of the things we used to love that help us remember the reasons we were so drawn to them and create new works that inspire that level of devotion or do we simply want to hear the litany of our childhood repeated back to us like an endless lullaby for the rest of our lives so my question to you is andrew is like do you see ways in which klein is in any way kind of honoring these stories or riffing on them or these pop culture beats or is it really just like a kid playing with their action figures and isn't it cool that i have this action figure yeah so like what i what i said before about the world being compelling Mm -hmm. i think like that's that's the to the extent that this book creates anything new sure it is not wholly dependent on things that are old Mm. 
that is that is what it is doing but its characters are they they just are nothing beyond the references that they make and know how to make really okay. um so he has he has a love interest named Artemis um his friend H turns out to while um she presents as a white man in the simulation she's a a uh, black lesbian in the real world which is like like they meet toward the end of the book and they and it, there's like a a moment where it's like oh this isn't what I expected because I didn't really know anything about you, but it's fine. And it's just kind of a it's it's a very 2011 like oh I don't even see race moment a yeah. little bit like yeah, I, <laughs> I buy that. It's it's in there and like good for Klein I guess that it is in there like that it's not just wall to wall white dudes, but the the fact that this character is black and gay the whole time is like something we are told about her rather than something that we are shown through the actions that she takes in the book. Yeah. And it doesn't seem related or earned with right, regard because to anything else. So yeah. so yeah. So it's, it's these couple characters in there and there are a couple others and they're all like, they're solving all these puzzles and they do all this stuff and they're the tensions between between the Gunters and IOI like ramp up and up and IOI ends up killing a couple people and they're just like really obviously evil. There's a sequence where Wade, like he kind of does this bit of trickery where he enters into indentured servitude to be like a Verizon tech support person. (laughs) And and again, this is, this is another thing that I thought I thought was pretty interesting as he like, he, had created this fake profile for himself so that IOI couldn't track him. He created this fake credit that he couldn't pay off. And so people from IOI came and they got him and they indentured him and they brought him into IOI headquarters. And then he grabs information from the inside with his like super hacker huh. skills. And, okay. And yeah. So like that, that's kind of interesting, but um, I forget where I was even going with this, but, but you have these, the, the characters, they do all these eighties quizzes and they get to the end and they beat IOI to the egg and Wade wins the egg. And then in the end, he gets the girl. And that's the end of the book. Like, yeah. That's the plot to the extent that I'm really interested in talking about it. Sure, sure. And the I just want to, real quick, the Slate review that I was referencing was written by Laura Hudson. Um, I want to give her credit for that quote that I read. Um, the nostalgia thing seems to be at odds. You talked a lot about the, like, you know that his friend presents as a white male and that it's like wall wall white dudes with terms of the references. I think that's at the core of where some of this uh, toxic nerddom vis-a-vis Gamergate is focused. We haven't even, we haven't even, we, we talked about the specifics of the wall to wall white dudes before we recorded the show, but we haven't even gotten into reading the list of references. That's what I wanted to get to because I think one of the big tension with this nostalgia stuff is that, uh, as you've relayed to me before recording, and we want to get into it, is that like it excludes a wide variety of people who then the tension in in movements like it's not even a movement, but a thing like Gamergate is that uh, as a more diverse pool of people enter into a fandom or into an, an industry or space, they start asking questions about why we revere certain right. things. Right. They they start asking like, oh, why why aren't there aren't there women in this? Why aren't there black people in this? Why aren't there 
queer all kinds of other this. people of yeah. color in this. Yeah, and, and and also asking like, what when the people are in this, why do they act in this specific way? And sure. the people who have who this is for, which is to say, mostly white dudes who are like, there's just there's this allergicness. Whenever anything is being criticized, I think fans of that thing see it as being attacked. And one of the things as, that, that I really dislike about fandom and fan culture is like overly self-identifying with the things you consume or the things you buy. And so a thing, a critic, so what, what, it, what happens is a criticism of a thing you like becomes an attack on a thing you like. And because you like that thing, you then perceive that to be an attack on you as a person. Yes. And like, true. and like none of the Siri calm down and none of that is none of that is like real. No, but that, but that's where that tension sort of comes from. And in, in there's, there's life, a very human impulse behind that, which has to do with, uh, when those things were not mainstream, um, it was a thing that you took shelter in, you took solace in, it was a community where you found people, uh, that you weren't finding in your day-to-day life, uh, that made you feel feel safe or valued or whatever. But to your point, your Star Wars devil trick is is very valuable here, right? Because it's like we've reached, we've passed the point where this is a thing you keep to yourself. Like, like mainstream these, this, '80s nerd culture is pop culture. Yes, it is. It is because so. Like, can you just give me a little bit of a taste of what this? book has canonized because there's stuff that's not in it that's wild to me yeah so so he there's a point this is early in chapter six where he talks about he's talking about halliday's almanac and he's talking about the i guess just the the canon as far as this book is concerned like the things that halliday was into and so the things you need to be into to survive in this like gunter world Mm -hmm. um all right so here's a here's a list of authors uh, Douglas Adams, Kurt Vonnegut, Neil Stevenson, Richard K. Morgan, Stephen King, Orson Scott Card, Terry Pratchett, Terry Brooks, Bester, Bradbury, Haldeman, Heinlein, Tolkien, Vance, Gibson, Gaiman, Sterling, Moorcock, Scalzi, Zelazny. Um, so t- if, y- <laughs> if you do <laughs> any research at all, which we did, you'll notice a common thread. And it's that all of those guys are white guys. They're all white guys. Every yeah. single one of them is a and, white guy. And again, like we are critiquing this not to say that liking any of those people as authors, we have read those authors for We've some read of most those of them and show. we yeah. and we like yeah, we like their work. Like it's fine. But it is it, if you are creating a future where that where this genre of work is becoming like part of a puzzle and representative of an era perhaps wind the net it's kind of it's almost i would at least expect there to be like a Le Guin or um, an atwood, an atwood yeah. in there somewhere like the the but there's not even an, an effort at any kind of tokenism which is well it's like you're you're trying less hard than the least possible effort you could possibly make and i guess it's also it's a first person novel right it's written from wade's point of view yeah true? right mm-hmm. and I, I just wonder too if there's like i'm not excusing this by any means but i think there's a limitation if it's confined to mostly your own experience or what you want the character's experience to be that perspective can then make it harder to interrogate it 
which I think is what you and I are both wishing this book did was like interrogate the root of this nostalgia. If it is going to be as uh, like extremely white as it is like why why well you know? and, and and also like you so you not only is that it is from wade's perspective sure but this is the the this is the list of cultural touch points that every character in the book has to know so yeah, you have that's a, what i'm saying you yeah. have a woman you have artemis who's his, his love interest who is extremely like an extremely good gunter and is ahead of him a couple times in the course of the contest you have h who is a who is who is a gay woman of color and yeah. of size, like incidentally. Um, and none of them have anything to say about any movie or author or book or game that is not on one of these lists. Uh, I devoured each of what Halliday referred to as the holy trilogies, Star Wars, original and prequel trilogies in that order, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, Mad Max, Back to the Future, and Indiana Jones. Halliday once said that he preferred to pretend the other Indiana Jones films from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull onward didn't exist. I tended to agree. I also absorbed the complete filmographies of each of his favorite directors, Cameron, Gilliam, Jack. Jackson, Fincher, Kubrick, Lucas, Spielberg, Del Toro, Tarantino, and of course, Kevin Smith. Of course, of Kevin course. Smith. Of course, Kevin Smith. Yeah, it's I just... I need to have that Jay and Silent Bob inside my my magical 80s future universe. Godzilla, G- Gamera, Star Blazers, the Space Giants, and G-Force, Go Speed Racer, Go! I wasn't some dilettante. I wasn't screwing around. I watched a lot of YouTube videos of cute, geeky girls playing 80s cover tunes on ukuleles. Technically, this wasn't part of my research, but I had a serious, cute, geeky girls playing ukuleles fetish that I can neither explain nor defend. The 80s was a long decade, 10 whole years, and Halliday didn't seem to have had very discerning taste. He listened to everything. Note that word, everything. So I did two pop rock, new wave punk, heavy metal, from The Police to Journey to R.E.M. to The Clash. I tackled it all. Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, and Pink Floyd. Everything. Yeah. Including white rock and white alternative rock. Yeah, like, <laughs> you and I were talking I about I burned this. through the entire They Might Be Giants discography in under two weeks. Devo took a little longer. Like, none of these are bad artists. It's just like, how are you going to give me this book where you say this dude knows every single thing about the 80s and nobody listens to a note of Michael Jackson? Like, what are you talking about? Or Madonna. Like, yeah. to, or like Whitney Houston. I, I Like, I get that there is, again, I, I wonder too if it's just an issue of like, it is an issue of the craft of the book, not necessarily an indictment of the thing, of the things being referenced themselves, where it's like, if you're going to toss around everything, if you're going to toss around encyclopedic and categorical and catalogical, like that then reinforces this idea um, that those are the only things worth valuing, that those are the like that that nostalgia is is the only and the main nostalgic. Right. Because as you just said, it it encompasses everyone in the world's reference point. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. that that's what ended up. And. And. <laughs> There are everybody has a book where it's like I know this book isn't great, but it's a page turner and I like I read it really fast. Yeah, sure. That is kind of what this book ended up being for me. Like I did enjoy a lot of things about reading it. I thought the ending was super weak. Just not not even talking about the eighties centricness of it, but just I thought the narrative arc was objectively weak. Okay. But the thing that ended up bothering me the most was just you have built this world that where like people from all walks of life rely on 
deep comprehensive knowledge of the 1980s to live and to get by like you can literally get real money like the the in-game money of this is a little eve online-ish in that way the, oh, sure. the in-game money is valuable enough that it's like more stable and valuable than actual world currencies so you yeah. can, by being good at this game you can actually earn a lot of a lot of money so like yeah. people's people's livelihoods like depend on this and you're making a big deal about how comprehensive it is but really it's like it takes such a narrow and not even like i mean i i get as frustrated as anybody with the, a hipstery like oh it's only cool if nobody's heard of it thing but yeah yeah there is nothing outside of the mainstream here like the mainstream of the mainstream like he drives around in a delorean with the ghostbusters logo on it like there's nothing counterculture in this at That's- all and that's and what's it's so just weird. Wild. To yeah. Me. So there's there's two it's thoughts. It's even that more wild than pop culture stopping at the at the early <laughs> '90s as it apparently does. I think there's two th- two thoughts that occur to me there. One is that '80s. There's this like, you know, you look at the late '70s and the '80s in terms of like blockbuster films, and so like corporate muscle behind, uh, creative. Ident- like IPs and stuff where everything becomes not just a, a movie but a brand or a franchise uh-huh. um, that that seems to be playing a role here right but mm-hmm. also like how are you gonna say I'm just Im- surprised that that this dude who designed this internet thing like what it what if his tastes were more eccentric and narrow you know what if it was it seems like this book is caught between like this guy's frame of reference not being wide enough and, or not being narrow enough. Where it well, it's also like- saying, and I, I think you get, unfortunately, I think some of this is just true to what big tech is right now. But sure. you, you've got like, you've got this one dude and his narrow viewpoint of what culture is. And he has apparently created something that's intended to be so universal that it like replaces school and shopping and, real world interaction for everybody Mm. for like people all over the world like all kinds of people all over the world and i mean you do get some of that like i the the people who developed facebook the people who built the iphone like they're not the teams were not super diverse because that's just not like that's not the culture that they came up in it's just like disappointing that I, I always find like, oh, that's the way it really would have been in the real world to be a disappointing defense in fiction because it just betrays a lack of imagination to me, I think. Yeah, and I'm I'm reminded of some of the authors that he actually referenced, like Stevenson in Snow Crash. And like that was not unaware of the real world, but that almost took the it took the extra step of like adding a layer of absurdity to a lot of the corporate references and things where it was like by interfacing with a bunch of stuff the reader knows, it it sounds like it hurts Klein's ability to like, and he probably maybe just wasn't interested in this, like making a statement on our relationship to it. He's just banking on us having a relationship to it, which is why you turn the next page. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that this book has such a strong anti-corporate bent because it is it is it's setting us up to be like... You know, everybody who uses this this Second Life Internet versus this giant company when the energy companies have already sucked the world dry and also all their touch points are from these giant corporate mega franchises. And then like there are there are 
there's lip service paid to literature and but video games are the most important thing then movies then maybe tv then music then books like that's the order of the importance of of the culture sure sure in this which i also found kind of disappointing is just a book that is wholly uninterested in books <laughs> in books and as someone who's interested in stuff like games and all that kind of stuff like i'm fascinated to see what touchstones are there for kids 20 years from now and like what that is for this generation you know for a bunch of folks who are teens now say to like grow up and start making stuff and what are they interested in and because that would be about where the book takes place right in the 2040s yeah um but because of whatever apocalypse happened in this book like or slow motion apocalypse like culture did stop at the 80s (laughs) so (laughs) So, yeah, I, I kind of I guess I kind of pine for the days, not just the time in my life, but the time in our collective cultural consciousness where I could have read this and been like, oh, hey, this is like a this is a book that references a bunch of stuff I'm familiar with. And, oh, they hey, that's neat. And I feel like this is for me. And it's just kind of harmless, goofy fun, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And now I can't help but see it as like. The, the the narrowness of the book should be an indictment of like fan culture and a popular culture and of what we deem is mm. is interesting and worthwhile and worth preserving and I don't know and it's it, got it, it's got a lot of blind spots and if sure. it were aware of those blind spots it would be one thing like it, it does pay some it it does talk about like Japanese culture some but I think it's kind of in a white otaku sort of fetishizing sense. way yeah, yeah, if, yeah that, if that yeah. makes any sense at all which um, like that was a huge part of friends like i had friends growing up where that was like part of what they were into and i i feel like we're still figuring out as you know like an american audience how to how to be fans of that stuff without it being overly appropriative or disrespectful yeah and yeah like there are a lot of like there's just a lot of bowing and calling people something son in this book it's just like are you is that okay Mm, fine no okay (laughs) no um yeah it just it feels like there's a really great book that is interested in being more critical of culture and more inclusive of of other kinds of subcultures and that's just not what this book is and I don't think that's necessarily Klein's fault. Like he could not have seen Gamergate coming from 2011. I don't think at least not no, from where no. he was like, like it is, I do kind of feel bad for him because he wrote this book that was well received and now he's changed nothing about the book or himself, but the popular, like the mainstream reception of it has, has shifted around him. And I, I feel kind of, kind of bad because that must be, that must just be strange. Like it must be hard to kind of internalize that. It it sounds like general response to the film has been that it is at least some of, I don't know, some reads of it have been that it's aware of that. Not everyone has, has found that to be the case. I don't want to generalize. Well, yeah. Um, like what I've heard is that most of the problems with it are the same. I don't know. Sure. Like, the, like it changes story beats and stuff, but it's still, it is, it is more interested in leaning into the sugary poppy 
adventure-y, reference-y bits of it and less into the dystopian, like, oh yeah, how do we, how did we get here parts of it, you know? Yeah, sure. Well, that's that's it. We're out of quarters. Game over, I guess. And then at the at the end, like he is he it's just him again. We could talk about the end. I don't know. It's just it's a tension free oh. final run where he is not seriously challenged by anything, and there's never any doubt that he's going to win. And also, like Artemis and H and and these other like there is a a black gay woman, a Japanese man, and a woman who he is in this like he is in this contest with and they are all doing super well and in the end he is the only one who can win so that's one message by itself and then the message at the end is artemis is like sitting in the middle of a maze that is modeled after a maze in a video game and so he has to like go into this maze and then literally the trophy at the end of the maze is the girl that he gets to smooch so yeah yeah it's worth examining that trope i know this book has fans i know there there are inevitably going to be people who are like why are you so hard on this i don't get why you were so you know i don't get why you couldn't like lighten up on this book that i like and i i'm not saying i didn't like it i'm just saying that if you were doing an hour-long book podcast as like entertainment and cultural criticism there is so so (laughs) much more to talk about when you're talking about what the book is wrong about or unaware of than yeah. you do talking about, Oh, like Mecha Godzilla and Ultraman like fight at the end. <laughs> yeah. No. You and know I, what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I and try I, not to be unfair to it because I know that's like when people ask who is reading what book, I feel like the subtext is that I am innately less inclined to like stuff, but no, but I, I also think that it's you. I really like what you said where you were like, I, if I had read this several years ago, I might not think about it this way. And I think that's something you and I have come to grips with over the course of doing the show for five years and come to grips with of like being, you are, you are more online than I am, but we are both pretty online. I am extremely online. Yeah. Um, We are both pretty online people. And a lot of American chopper meme has (laughs) broken your brain. (laughs) A lot of stuff has changed since, the aughts and a lot of uh, most not of it for good uh some of <laughs> what it for was good. the thing wait what did you say most not of it for good not um, of it for good i think what's happened is that there's been a this is what's good is that there has been an increase in folks having uh, a platform to critique stuff uh that should be critiqued and what this book's version of nostalgia is is not interested in that type of critique and that maybe wasn't a thing anyone was not that no one was thinking about it but it was not as a it was not as part of the discourse the general conversation about art and pop culture that we are that a lot of us are trying to have today yeah and i and i also get that impulse to like just like can i just kind of turn my critical brain off and enjoy something like can i just like watch an episode of bridezilla's and like get off my jock about it (laughs) and like well, it's interesting, and right? I and I understand about escapism. It's yeah. a book about escapism that to not f- like how seductive is it to then escape into it and not think about some of the larger concerns. Um, yeah, but then again, like I I understand why people feel that way, but I just it's it's not 
a perspective I am interested in forwarding on this book podcast that we do. That seems reasonable to me. So, yeah. Um, Thanks to one of our Patreon supporters, Ashley, for recommending the book to the show. A couple other people over the years have asked us to get to this book, uh, and I'm kind of glad we were able to put it in the ballpark of when the movie came out so that there was a decent amount of writing about it and and opportunities for both of us to kind of think about the book. uh, I am super glad to have read it, and I I was really, really... I had a really good time interrogating my response to it and yeah. like trying to figure out why exactly it was rubbing me the wrong way. And I hope we've been able to critique the thing without making people who like the thing feel bad about it. I mean, that's not that's not what I'm trying to do, but it's it's something that I have trouble with sometimes. So just, just know that that was not the intent. If you have other questions about this book or if you uh, have a favorite reference that we didn't make, about gaming culture during this podcast. You can share that with us at overduepod at gmail.com or you can hit us up in our own versions of the Oasis on Twitter and Facebook at overduepod. (laughs) A bunch of people have reached out in the past week uh, in response to our Gone with the Wind episode and our Sue Grafton episode and Andrew's uh, reminder that we have to read Twilight in the next few weeks. Uh, so thanks to Megan and Mel and Robin and Robbie and Tyler and Ricardo and Kate and Aaron and William and Kara and Honestiago and Lee and Rebecca and Jessica and Stephen and Timothy and Trina and Julie and Morgan uh, and many, many more for making us feel loved throughout the week. We really appreciate it and we really appreciate all of y'all spreading the word about the show. Andrew, folks want to know more. Where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com. It's our internet website up there. We have links to iTunes, Google Play, RSS. Those are the ways you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out on Mondays. Um, we also have a link to our Patreon page. That's Patreon.com slash OverduePod. We talked about it a bit last week, but we've made some changes to our reward tiers recently. And we have launched a new show within a show called Stop Homer Time where the two of us read Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey a book or two at a time. That's going to start coming out to people who don't donate or people who donate like below our $10 tier in May sometime. So you will get to hear that if you, if you can't donate or you're just not interested in it, like there's no hard feelings there, (laughs) but you can get early access to those uh, through our Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash overdue pod. That's it. Next week, I'm reading The New Life by Orhan Pamuk. Tune in. All right. Sounds fun. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.